Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I recently spent several hours on a transatlantic flight zooming in and out of the interactive map of the Earth on my seat's personal entertainment unit, exploring tiny islands in the polar north, impossible inland seas in the middle of Central Asian deserts, places so remote and strange that they fire the imagination. In 2018, it's not easy to wrap your mind around the fact that not all that long ago, no human and no satellite had ever set eye on many of these places. For all anybody knew, much of the Earth was probably populated by cyclopses and sea monsters. In the mid-1800s, the icy poles, north and south, were the final frontiers. And the brave men, and even a bit braver perhaps, women disguised as men, who set off to explore them were quite literally heading into the unknown. My guest today is writer, actor, comedian, and explorer Michael Palin. He studied history at Oxford, then transformed comedy forever as a writer and performer in Monty Python's Flying Circus. Since then, he's been traveling the world, writing books and hosting travel documentaries. His latest book, Erebus, resurrects one of the greatest nautical mysteries of all time and takes us deep into the icy heart of polar exploration in the mid-19th century. Welcome to Think Again, Michael. Thank you, Jason. Nice to be here. <laughs> it's so good to have you here. Thank you. So why this story now in 2018? Well, I'm, I'm a great believer in things just happening, kind of intuition. The particular fascination with this ship began when I was doing some research on, on quite a different subject. I was um, having to give a talk at a club in London about a club member. It's a very old club and going back to 1830. And I'd chosen a man called Joseph Hooker. Joseph Hooker was a great botanist, and he set up the Royal Horticultural Gardens in, in Kew right. um, in London, which is some of the world's leading horticultural gardens at the time. Anyway, turned out this guy, rather sort of earnest, bespectacled, whiskered um, Victorian gent, had at the age of 22 signed on as assistant surgeon on a ship called Erebus. I'd never heard of Erebus before. And the more I... I research Joseph Hooker, the more I became fascinated by the achievements of this ship, Erebus. It set out in 1839. And uh, Erebus, if I may interrupt, Erebus, yeah. the etymology of that, it's, it's, it's a demon? What, what exactly well, is it again? It, Erebus was, it's slightly confusing, but in Greek mythology, Ere, right. Erebus was the son of chaos, and it really means the darkest pit of hell. One of the original titans, or, is um, that, or chaos was a titan? And was then, chaos a titan? I don't I think know. Maybe. This, I don't is, know. this is yeah. something we'll have okay. to, <laughs> right. your listeners will have to let me know about that. As far as I know, and what I say when I do my talk, is that um, Erebus was a ship named after the darkest pit of hell. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I say you wouldn't get that nowadays, except the odd cruise liner, maybe. <laughs> but people would say, that's what it's like, but not, not that's what it's called. But anyway. Right, I mean, right, right. It was this little ship. And it was a small ship, it was 104 feet long, and it went down to the Antarctic and spent four years there. And during the expedition of which Hooker was a part, they just saw things that people had never, ever seen before. Like in your introduction, you were talking about sort of parts of the world that for a long time were, remained completely undiscovered. And the Antarctic was definitely one of those. People didn't even know whether it was a continent. It was just, right. or there was a landmass there. Erebus's expedition, a guy called James Clark Ross, who was the captain, discovered and confirmed that there was a landmass called Antarctica. They discovered extraordinary phenomena like the, uh, the Great Southern Barrier, which they called it, which is, it was an ice barrier, uh, 100 foot high, stretching for miles, now known as, I think, the Ross Ice Shelf. They discovered a volcano, which they called Mount Erebus, in right. the middle of the Antarctic. Active and shooting fire. It was act thumb, active yeah. and shooting fire, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, in the, in the diaries of the people on the expedition, there was a series of wonders over a few months. And they made two more expeditions deep into Antarctica. They went round the Antarctic continent. They didn't find the South Magnetic Pole, which is that's what they were right. after. The captain was Ross. Yeah, Ross. John James, Ross. James, James, James Ross. Clark Ross, yeah. yeah. He had found, he had discovered the North Magnetic Pole right. in 1831. So he wanted to be the man who found the South Magnetic Pole as well. But he couldn't get there because of the ice and because there was a substantial landmass in front of him. But in every other respect, it was a hugely successful expedition. Yeah. I mean, what's extraordinary about the story that you tell? I mean, first of all, 
there's a lot of adventure and there's also there's also a lot of just in, endurance a lot of waiting yeah. around for many months yeah, in yeah. the freezing boring yeah. confined cold yeah? yeah and some of the ways they survive that are a lot of fun it's an interesting aspect of it all i, I tried very hard to you know, in my imagination to think what it would have been like going further south than anyone had been before, literally being in the unknown and being, as they were at certain times, trapped in very thick ice, right. unable to move. You're in a sailing ship. You've got no auxiliary motors to turn you around and set you off in a different direction. Yeah, I should emphasize that for the listeners. This was the sailing ship that went the farthest south before ships started going there under steam power. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. That's important. Um, it, it was, a, it, and it remains the furthest south that any sailing ship had, had ever been. So they were, you know, at times they were literally stuck there. And I, I think myself, you know, I would have been, I would have been near panic. You know, how do we get out of this? Where are we? There's no maps, no charts. And yet you look at the records of the journey and... Um, you know, they had a party on New Year's Eve when they were stuck fast. They decided to have a party. These guys get off the ship. They they carve an eight-foot woman <laughs> out of the ice. Um, and then they carve a dance floor and they build a pub, which they call the Pilgrims of the Ocean. And they get musical instruments out. They get pigs. They have pigs on board, unbelievably. Yeah. And so they got pigs, put them under their arms to make a noise. And I, I suddenly realized that, you know, that's the way of dealing with a with a, a confined situation like that is to either you either panic or you just say, let's, you know, humor comes out and all that. And also they were making a lot of noise. This was an interesting thing. And of course, these people were probably there were two ships, Erebus and Terror on the expedition. Right. Each with about 60 men on board. So there's 120 men. These are the only people on the bottom sort of segment of the Earth's surface, so yeah. like 10% of the Earth. And it's totally silent. So what do you want to do? You want to scream. You want to yell. So they squeal. Just make as much noise as they can to defy the silence and, and defuse the fear, I suppose. And the ver venerable Captain James Ross is dressing in drag and yes. dancing with the men as well. <laughs> yes, that's a, yeah. Well, you've you've read it up. I couldn't believe that when I when I saw. Yeah, and and I read as sort of part of the whole study of thing about a lot of other expeditions that had been trapped in the ice. Right. And in 1821, there'd been quite a successful ex expedition uh, to the Arctic, and they had overwintered for two winters. They were stuck there, but they had a full program of theatrical events. Plays were written. The captain wrote a play. You know, for the right. They all. They use the ice as a kind of arena and also, you know, just to deal with the fear. But I couldn't see where the fear came from. In the book, I, I do document some near disastrous encounters with icebergs when men clearly express their fear and their terror. When oh, they, a crazy, crazy encounter. Together. Yeah, where they go through essentially a, a, they get trapped. They wake up at like one in the morning. They're trapped mm. in a sort of tunnel yeah. of icebergs yeah. and there's two ships are about to crash into each other. Yeah. Yeah, and Erebus. And, and they did smash and they into crash, each other. Yeah. They do smash each other. And one of the ships, Erebus, only just gets out because the captain, James Clark Ross, was a, such a superb navigator. He knew about this technique called um, sternboarding, not waterboarding, sternboarding. Uh, which, <laughs> that which waterboarding ships, maybe hadn't that been maybe invented came, no, yet. Yeah. <laughs> it was all ice then, you know. They couldn't, they couldn't melt it quick enough. He, it was a reverse. It's like reversing the ship out. He had no sails, so he just he reversed the ship out on what little sort of rigging he had. So it was a miraculous escape. So it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't all sort of um, fun on the ice. Fun and games. Well, and that's one of the most interesting things about the story you tell in the book is that there are... We know that there are sort of multiple levels of reality operating here. On the on the one hand, they have you know they have they have the sort of the official mission, and different people on the ship have different jobs, collecting botanical samples, trying to find magnetic south. You have the sort of program that the captain institutes to try to keep everyone engaged and happy and keep morale up, mm, basically. Yeah. And all of that is real. Obviously, the guys are having a good time when they're drinking their double ration of rum and yeah, dancing yeah. and whatever. Mm. But then you also have these very long months and you have the sort of unofficial record that we get a little bit through Hooker's letters yeah. home. Yeah. We get a piece of that. Yes. You know, a lot of misery, a lot of depression and a lot mm. of discontent too, you know? 
through I, all I, of this. You know, I'm I'm surprised that didn't sort of kick in earlier. <laughs> Hooker was, uh, you know, he was a great fan of the captain. He thought it was a great journey. He was a bit, um, he a bit upset because there's no. Well, he was a botanist and there's no plants in the Antarctic, so he was getting <laughs> right, right, right. But he also <laughs> began by the, by the very end. He was beginning to question the leadership because they made three separate journeys down to the Antarctic. The first one was very successful, the second less so and very dangerous, the third achieved practically nothing. So he was saying, right. why did we go back three times? And I, I was surprised it took, you know, that was into the second or third year of the expedition. I'm, I'm surprised there wasn't mutiny before that. You know, the grand narrative of, mm. of the exploration is trending downward. It's less and less yes. engaging, less and less interesting, and it's a lot of time away from home. Yeah. I mean, maybe if they had continued to make miraculous discoveries, it would have been I, I think a key thing was better. this, this uh, <laughs> near disaster that we were talking about when the two these two icebergs are coming together right. and they just get through <clears throat> i think for many people that was enough you know you've survived something like that do right. you want to go back and risk any more I'd, I'd want to get home i'd say okay we were lucky divine providence whatever you call it <laughs> yeah. saved us let's get out of here and the fact that they kept on them for about another six months uh, down in antarctica i can understand hooker and others beginning to criticize the right. captain and and the captain and the, the captain of, of the other ship, Terra, they were never the same men after that disaster. There was a sort of little note. Someone had had dinner with them in Cape Town on the way home, and a woman noted that their hands were shaking. Right. And she said, you know, what, what's, your hands are shaking. And uh, Captain Clark Ross said, you see, you see how they're shake? The one night in the Antarctic did this for us. So that was clearly quite a psychological blow, that near, that near escape. They should have just gone home, I think. I guess there's a certain suspension of disbelief that is necessary to venture that far. I mean, what they did was absolutely crazy. They drove this this ship that was reinforced with copper, basically, right? An oak hull ship with, with uh, yes, copper um, reinforcing or whatever. Yeah. And mm. they're driving it into these ice flows that are periodically freezing over. Mm. And at one point, they managed to go like 130 miles through such a thing yes. to get to that sea. What's the, the sea Ross called? Sea the Ross became, Sea. Yeah. You know, they could have been frozen in at any point and they all could have died. But to do that, I guess you have to be fearless to a certain extent. And then when you almost die, then maybe that shakes yeah. that a bit. Yeah. I think you have to be you have to be fearless. You have to be motivated in some shape or form. And a lot of these guys were just they were hired seamen. They weren't they didn't have to sort they weren't press ganged or anything. It was right. a job for them. Right. But they had to be motivated in the same way that the captain was. And that's the difficult thing. The captain could perhaps see the glory. He was he was an employee of the Admiralty. He knew a lot of other naval captains who had gone to the Arctic. He was a competitive character. So he had something going. What was so extraordinary about the journey was he managed to keep the crew with him on his side for so long. And they were, I mean, I, I just can't believe what it must have been like uh, furling and unfurling sails in, you know, minus 30 degrees, ice growing on the ice on the rigging. And they didn't use gloves. They wouldn't use gloves. This was kind of superstition because the gloves would be slippery. Right. And they used bare hands to furl and unfurl the sails in those temperatures. I mean, why didn't all their hands, fingers fall off? But they didn't. I, I don't, you know, they, yeah, they, I don't understand that. And also, speaking of superstition, a lot of the seamen had, the crew members had the superstition that learning to swim yes. indicated like a yeah. lack of faith in the captain or something. And so, yes. and so they didn't learn to swim. Yeah, that was right. <laughs> if you learned to swim, you were a kind of loser. You were, you were, you were contemplating failure. <laughs> you mustn't contemplate failure or anything like that. So none of them could, could swim. Well, as far as we know. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's an extraordinary study in human nature. You know, you don't get that many opportunities to experiment with humans and take them in a confined, you know, yeah, setting. They, that's, that's right. I mean, it's not, it's not the right metaphor, but it's like a crucible. You put these people in these extraordinary situations and see how they dealt with it. And it was exactly, exactly like that. No one, there was no precedent for what they had done. But um, there's and there was social engine. I mean, social engineering was necessary, keeping people busy, you know, doing these entertainments, making sure, giving them exercise, you know. So the captain yeah. is constantly experimenting with yeah. trying to maintain morale. And well, as far know. as I can tell, life on board ship at that time was absolutely regimented. Right, four hours on, four hours off. 
people were, so the whistle went, people came up, they were given their job on the rigging or holystoning, as they called it, to the deck, which is cleaning the deck, cleaning the brass, whatever, cooking. Everyone had a job to do all the time. So there's very little time to stop and think. And you were only in your hammock probably for about four hours sleep before the next time you were up. And then you, so it was constant activity. But there were times when, you know, when they were stuck in the ice, when they didn't, they couldn't move. So you had to kind of keep them occupied, hence the amateur dramatics and all <laughs> right, that kind of right. stuff. Yeah. And in that sense, I mean, in the regimentation, like this is definitely a story from a different time. You couldn't, modern Western people, modern British or American, mm. you don't see them falling into line. I mean, maybe in the military to some extent, but I bet even their individuality has broke, busted out to yeah. an extent that would make it difficult. Uh, I don't know, though. I've traveled a bit and I've seen people in extraordinary difficult circumstances still mm -hmm. doing drill and still being sort of um, under military discipline, like in the northern Pakistan, where there's a standoff between Pakistan and the Indian armies. Okay. And they're at 18,000 feet, these guys. It's freezing up there. But somehow they still march and they still sort of persuade themselves that it's important for the, for the military discipline and all that to carry on. So there are, there are modern parallels. Actually, this, this is a nice segue into some of your travel work. Aside from the Erebus ending up lost and shipwrecked in the North Pole, you know, are there any parallels that you sensed, any metaphorical overlap between these journeys as you were visiting, revisiting this history and your own journeys? You, you've been traveling from, yeah. what, 30 year, 40 yeah, years? Yes, now? Like, exactly. 30 years this year, yes, yeah. since we did Around the World in 80 Days. What's interesting, I've been to places which I could not now go back to. For instance, the central Sahara, beautiful countries like Mali and wild countries like Niger, mm. which is, I was in Niger on 9-11 when 9-11 happened. And Niger is the poorest country in the world. And I got there and the director said, have you heard what's happened in New York? And we were just absolutely unable to believe it. Wow. And we were miles and miles from, you know, home and, and loved ones and all that. And the story was getting around that the terrorists were going to hit London next and then Paris and all that. And we were on a, a, a roof on this little sort of clay building in the heart of Niger in the middle of the desert. And the most extraordinary thing was that you got to the hotel and there's a lot of guys outside just waiting for tourists and sort of saying, you know, there's a wonderful man kept, said, uh, hey, uh, I know Ginger Baker. And Ginger Baker, the, the drummer, you know, been, had been for Cream. He had been there. He, he, he loved Niger and made <laughs> friends there. So they thought anybody who was a white guy knew Ginger Baker. Hey, I know Ginger Baker. <laughs> anyway, we spent the night digesting the horror of what had happened in the attacks in New York. And the next morning, I thought, for me, you know, the world had changed. Just your whole sort of way of thinking about the world. You suddenly felt unsafe. You felt vulnerable. And I went downstairs, and the guy outside said, hey, I know Ginger Baker. They <laughs> hadn't taken it in at all. They didn't, you know, because Niger was so poor, it had no app relationship to what was happening in New York or the West. Right. I suddenly thought, they don't care, these guys. They really don't care. What they care about is, did I know Ginger Baker? But... I preface that by saying, you know, I, I couldn't go back to those places now. We made some good friends there, and I could not go back because terrorism has now sort of embedded itself in that part of Central Africa and the uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And that's really sad. That's I believe very much in the human contact is the one sort of optimistic aspect of the future for us all. We can make contact now. There are many ways in which we can all talk to each other. And I think that's a good thing. The best thing of all is actually physically going to someone's country, finding out how they live and learning from them, not so, not imposing your own judgment on them. So the fact that I can't go to a country like that, and I probably would not be able to go back to the northwest frontier in Pakistan, right. seems a, a victory for terror rather than um, reason. I think I share your belief that human contact and mm. that conversation and that reaching out, mm. you know, is really what we should mm. be doing to make the world a better place. Well, a safer place. Or a safer possibly. place. Mm. But I find myself more and more living in a world, I mean, especially if I look at Facebook, if I look at social media, I find myself more and more living in a world of absolutes, mm. of black and white, you know, yeah. and where people are sort of demanding that other people take a stand and that, uh, you yeah. know, and arguing mm. against things. And I, I wonder, mm. you know, I wonder, if, you know, how you position yourself in relation to that kind of 
tendency or trend? I don't do much social media. I have a Facebook site, but I don't do Twitter and all that. Partly because I lead a fairly rich life anyway. I have a lot of right. contacts, a lot of friends. To me, it's important to keep those friends that I see and know rather than extend one's range so much that you give a tiny bit to everybody. I'd rather give gotcha. more to, uh, you know, to a few. And I think that, that social media, you, you're right, it, people deal in absolutes because they don't really see the surroundings. They deal with a very, very narrow context. You're just right. getting someone's experience from one country and buzzing it back to them. It's, it's a form of words. It's not being there. It's not sort of smelling the country. It's not sort of seeing how hot it is out there. It's not knowing how grateful you can be to somebody who's helped you with a lift along the road or something like that. That's right. real contact. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a sort of faux contact in a way, which makes you feel as though you know the world, but actually makes the world, I think, a slightly more threatening place. So there we go. I sometimes think it comes down to personality types as well. I was watching this. They did this retrospective of your career on the BBC. Maybe it was this oh, year. Yes. Your buddy John Cleese is saying <laughs> yeah. Yeah. he he should he, he was always so affable yeah. and so, you know and I could yeah. I could I can totally see it like because he's he's much more of a kind of tough confrontational, critical, confrontational yes. critical thinker. Yeah, he's a, he's an unhappy man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I so so I, I sometimes think mm. that yeah the yeah. the world divides into yeah. line personality I, I, lines. I know way. absolutely you can't say you know <laughs> you've got to take a certain role there. It comes from what you are and the way you are. And I'm I'm generally agreeable. I I see the best side of people and occasionally I get it completely wrong <laughs> and I'm taken for a ride, but I prefer that to being to standing back all the time and 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 refusing to sort of trust anybody. That's right. another way of doing it, which I think then you, you again you miss a bit. It's about trust on one level. I just yeah. find I, I enjoy talking to people. I found it more as I grow older, perhaps because I'm less you know we're not quite as feeling as responsible and competitive. But just I meet people like cab drivers here in New York or London or wherever, and I have a talk to them, and it's great. You know, suddenly you'd never get that probably on Twitter. You're there. You know, face to face with somebody. Twitter and social media are kind of one-liners. It's like back. And yeah, you well, know. It, I mean, they are. They're restricted. That's the whole point of them. Yeah, That's yeah. why Donald Trump likes them so much. Because <laughs> you don't have to really roll out a reasoned argument. Again, I'm being sort of affable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I think you get more out of people that way than by being confrontational. This comes up in the context of I've seen your the North Korea special mm, and yes. so you went to North Korea mm. you filmed there for mm. a couple two, days two weeks two weeks two, two weeks, weeks. Yeah, yeah and that thing walks a very difficult line and you're quite open about it throughout the series yeah. where you're trying you know on the one hand you're you're just trying to see whether kind of people blossom open to you yeah. uh, by spending yeah. time with them yeah. and on the other hand you know, you're aware that there's like death camps somewhere that you're not being shown. Well, I assume they are because people have told me, that. you know, I can't vouch for the death camps. I never seen them myself. But I think if you go in believing everything you've heard, that mm. the country is purely the axis of evil, they've got death camps, they've got sort of punishment camps, there's no freedom of movement or anything like that, then I think you either wouldn't go or you'd go with such a closed mind. You'd go in in a very suspicious way. Now, let's say for the sake of argument uh, that there are death camps. Yeah. Ad admittedly, I don't actually have the evidence in front of me, so I don't know where no, that yeah, comes from. But let's say for the sake of argument that that is the case. Still, what did you discover just by talking to people or how, you know, what side of the country do you feel you saw? I saw a surprising benevolence. That's the only word I can think of. It wasn't malevolence. And there's a kind of feeling that North Korea, the way it's portrayed in the Western media is, is a malevolent place full of people who bear grudges against the rest right. of the world who want to destroy us with missiles. It's never that easy. That's a political decision, build the, the missiles and all that. And maybe he'd use them, maybe he wouldn't. I happen to think he probably wouldn't. It's all about trying to get to the negotiating table right. for a very small country. The people there on the whole, they were very happy to see us there. I never felt someone was saying, you know, you're the enemy. Um, what are you doing here? Admittedly, we were supervised. We had sure. people with us most of the time. But by the end of the 13 days, we had been able to film every day. A Western film company going into film was absolutely forbidden up till 
the beginning of this year. So we've been very lucky to get that access. And also finding that I slowly began to sort of break down there's a great loyalty to the leaders. I mean, it, is, it does exist in a bubble. It's North love. Korea. It's, it's love from it what is, I can it see. It is. Like, I mean, yeah. as you can see, the girl who reads a poem in class, the woman who talks about um, Kim Jong-il's birth in the hut in the forest, their eyes begin to sort of fill with tears as they say and it's, there's a passion and it's a very extraordinary thing to witness but it's not it wasn't directed against us in any shape or form as being sort of embodiment of the devil so that's what I mean about benevolence we yeah, found yeah. benevolence there we found people who would be helpful to us who wanted to listen to us who were prepared to talk to us if they were allowed to I know that you know sure. it's kind of but North Korea is preserving the bubble and preserving their, their way of life. And it's going to all change once they They're start They're starting to open up. up a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah. just heard, I just heard actually yesterday that the railway links between the two countries are going to be reopened. So reunification of the peninsula is beginning to happen. Wow. Now that's, that, that will that's be huge. extraordinary. Because people forget Korea as an entity has existed for a thousand years, North and South as communist and capitalist antagonists has only existed for 70 years. So there are a lot of people now who, who share in the South, share a lot with the North and vice versa. But it's not going to be easy because of the political systems. Oh, there's going to be some serious growing pains, I would I think, imagine. I think, I think there will. But the alternative was just to remain embattled behind the fences, directing your missiles, shouting and and bad-mouthing everybody. That seems to be, Kim Jong-un does seem to be sort of taking a step towards some conciliation, which is good. And I, I kind of found that when we were there, they were curious. You know, my my guides, you know, she was really interested in, I, I had, there's no internet there. You can't get much news about the rest of the right. world at all. But I showed her pictures of my grandchildren on, on my phone and all that. And she was absolutely fascinated, you know, where we lived and all that sort of thing. And, when I left, I, she really liked. I had a sort of um, white Panama hat, straw hat. Right, I saw that yeah. I wore every now and then, and I gave it to her. She she said, "I'll look after your hat while you're uh, <laughs> while you're filming." And in the end, she liked it so much. I saw her sort of putting it on and checking herself out in the reflection in the mirror of one of the vehicles. And I said, "You like that hat, don't you?" She said, "Oh, no, yeah, but you have it." But I left it with her in the end. So my hat is somewhere in North Korea. <laughs> I, that's excellent. I mean, she probably couldn't walk down the street wearing it. They do have some remarkable hats, but they seem to all be mm. kind of of a yeah, piece, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. She, <laughs> it's well, a conservative, yes, sartorially I mean, conservative society. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them wear the peaked hats because they're all in the military. Yeah, but yeah. They're, they're quite a sort of well-dressed country. So men, men and women kind of wear suits going to work and all that. The capital is very, very clean. But... They, they enjoy themselves. They, they like to, like, I've been to South Korea as well, and I found the Koreans kind of rather different from the Japanese. The Japanese are a bit like the British, a little bit reserved. More regimented, know. perhaps. Um, whereas yeah. the South Koreans are much more sort of jolly, and they love to, uh, they like to drink, they like to dance, they like to sing. I saw all that in North Korea. It yeah. wasn't as if you cross one line and suddenly you're in total darkness and people are standing to attention I mean, with guns. Speaking of stereotypes, yeah, I found myself surprised at the fact that I was surprised that the meal that they set out before you contained many uh, things that I'm familiar with from yeah, eating yeah. Korean food in Queens where yeah. I live, you yeah. know? I, and then I'm like, yeah. why am I surprised at this? I yes. somehow had imagined they'd be eating colorless yeah. gruel like from your film Brazil, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I know, I know exactly what you mean. There was the potato barbecue. That was um, that was just one charred potato. I thought, now this is more, <laughs> well, I thought this is once more you like got, the Western attitude. I thought once you got past the skin, it might be pretty toothsome. It was, like. it was, yeah, yeah. It was a tough little thing. As I say, I thought it might be a rat, but it was a, it was a potato. <laughs> and as you guys used to say, now for something completely different. We're going to look at these surprise clips that my video team has dug up for us, okay. which are conversation starters. They're like two to three minutes each. Yeah. Okay. Could be on any subject. I've not seen them. Michael hasn't seen them. And... Let's see what they've got for us. Eh? Let's go. I like it. All right, yeah. cool. Okay. I don't want to say her name wrong. This is Nadia Tolokonikova. She is a conceptual artist and political activist from Russia, famously part of the punk group Pussy Riot. Pussy Riot. Yeah. Mm. So this video is called Feminism is for Everyone, or that's how they've titled it mm. here. Let's see what she has to say. 
It is really interesting for me as uh, for Russian activists that is still a question here whether women have right to have abortions or not. As you know, in, in Russia it's completely out of the question. Like we just do have this right and like, you know, snow is white. Women have right to have abortions. That's it, the end of story. Um, and then I started to think, like, what, why? Why it is like that in, uh, in Russia? Because, you know, like, for, unfortunately for a lot of American people, uh, it's, um, it's kind of obvious that Russia is, um, is not as developed as America, which is not true at all. Um, we had amazing um, experience of um, Soviet experiment, and you know it brought us a lot of terrible things, including extinction of philosophy and art. Uh, and uh, me as like philosophy student, I really suffered from that. But at the same time, it brought a lot of brilliant things, like, you know, like strong feminism, socialist movement. And in the beginning of 20s, uh, Russian women, once and for all, I think, realized that they do have right to control their bodies. Then, um, so they were given right to have abortion in 20s, then they lost this right and when Stalin came to power, but then they got it back in 1953 and since then they always had this right. I don't like to uh, answer nasty things with nasty words. What I, like, when, even when I was attacked in uh, McDonald's uh, in Moscow with this green medicine liquid in my eyes and uh, like some metal objects thrown in my and Masha's, my colleague heads. Like what I did at that instance, I just came to those people and hugged them and then asked like, why, why did you do that? And then I thought, uh, I saw that I saw something in their eyes, like they, they, they were, they started to think that actually we are human beings, because you know, this, this beginning of war, where you, when you dehumanize uh, other. So yeah, I don't want to dehumanize people who hate feminism. Um, what jumps out is, at me, <laughs> As ever, when you, you discuss anything about Russia, is the extraordinary contradictions of this huge country. You know that they, she, she refers to what happened under the Soviet system in which um, millions died just because of the, they were reorganizing the economy and they were right. to get rid of the peasants and all that. And yet you go into the Second World War and you realize that without the Russians' willingness to sacrifice themselves like they did at Stalingrad and things like that, the outcome of the Second World War could have been very, very different. I mean, Hitler's yeah. real downfall was trying to invade Russia, the way Napoleon tried to invade Russia. People just don't understand Russia. And I think she, she for me, produces lots of nice little contradictions about the country. You know, the fact that there is abortion is allowed in Russia. Russia is not a backward country. Right. Ideas and thoughts are going on all the time and have done for hundreds of years, uh, some of the great writers we all know, you know, Dostoevsky and Chekhov and people like that. I don't know whether it's still the case, but I, um, my understanding is that Russia is also an extraordinarily literate society, yes. that, you know, a surprising yeah. number of people, regardless yeah. of education, will be familiar with yeah. Eugene Onegin yes. or whatever. But then, you know, what she is saying there, what happened to her in McDonald's, and she had paint or, or some acid, I don't know, something thrown at her shows that there's always those two sides. And I, the times I've been to Russia, there are intellectuals, there are people sort of with extraordinary ideas, very progressive ideas about how society is run. And then there's the vast sort of um, number of people there who equally feel very strongly that Russia shouldn't change and believe that Putin is a kind of, is the strong man they need, you know, despite the fact that he won't allow a completely free press. He makes, draws conclusions, which we all think is completely crazy and denies whatever the Russians might be doing in other countries and with other embassies and all that. And nevertheless, there are a lot of people who believe that that's what Russia needs. Mm. And here's this lovely lady who's <laughs> just, she knows all that and she's prepared to 
tolerate an attack like that and go up and, you know, hug, hug the guys the who did it. And that says, that says an awful lot. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as trying to be a conciliator rather than a confrontationalist, but I don't think I would have probably, I'd have bashed them or something like that, you know. So the fact that she, she did that is, is just rather touching and, and, and hopeful. And I think you know, she, she gives great testimony there about what it's like living in Russia. She won't, obviously is not concerned for people to say, because I'm an activist, I must hate everything Russian. Right. And you you must think I'm a I'm like you. I hate Russia. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely opposite. What she's saying there, I think, is she, she loves Russia and she's proud to be Russian. But there's, you know, there are these huge contradictions. And what's funny is that almost everything you just said about Russia, as I was listening to you, I was overlaying on the America that I now live in, mm. you know, a mm. land, a vast mm. land full mm. of contradictions, yeah. tremendous freedoms and mm. other people who want to turn the clock back or mm. keep things the way mm. that they are. Um, I mean, what, what, I mean, this is relatively a, a new, newish, you know, yeah. foment in America, but... But I think it's all part of what America's about, what we all hope a country is about, of letting people um, declare their feelings, declare their interest. You know, the danger is when they're suppressed to such an extent that you get people coming up to young girls and throwing paint in their faces just because they don't agree with their views. Now, that's a, that's a real test. You know, we've had similar things in in the UK. Yeah, we had you know a, we're starting a young to girl see people murdered because she was um, the man was a sort of really a, a white supremacist, didn't like her views about immigrants. So we're we're all dealing with this. Yeah, we're no, starting to see it here. You know, people attacking protesters yeah. and so on. Yeah. yeah. You know, what was that book at the called the end of history? Was it mm. Fukuyama? And Fukuyama, all, yeah. You know, tried at one point to say we've got liberalism as one, yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, no, that I know that's absolutely simplifying it. But that um, was the broad, yeah, but that umbrella. Was the broad yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've we've cracked it all. Democracy mm. is working, and you know, within, within 15, 20 years, it's all completely changed. I now. think it's because of inequality. I think it's because I think it's because capitalism never solved the inequality problem, and it mm. sort of gets worse and worse as money gets concentrated yeah, in the hands yeah. of like Silicon Valley billionaires, yeah. you know? But I do think also that you, we get back to what I think we were saying a lot earlier, <laughs> there are different sort of people in the world. Yeah. There are some people who are aggressive. They, for whatever reason, you know, their upbringing or something like that, they want to get something over somebody else. Competition is mm. very important. They're prepared mm. to go to any length to get their views. And there are other people who look around and say, hey, I'm going to write a poem today, you know, and uh, I'm going to hug somebody who's just thrown some paint in my eye. You yeah, know? So, John Lennon lying in a bed saying, give peace a chance. Yes, you know? well, yeah. Although exactly. he, he himself was, I guess, a massive contradiction. Yes, I think he probably would. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think he'd, yeah, he could defend himself. <laughs> <laughs> pretty well. But I think it is just we, we are all different and we have to get used to that. It's this spectrum, isn't it? Yeah, sort of from suspicion and isolation on the one hand to mm. openness on the other. Basically, conservatism, liberalism, that's kind of the, I guess, human temperamental spectrum that we're talking about. Yeah, and liberalism has always had a few dangers with it because it's, it's, it's going into areas which people have not gone into before, whereas conservatism is tending to say, everything's fine, let's leave it the way it is. And yes, but, but human nature is always going to defy that neat distinction. And I think just talking as we're talking now, the fact the way she talked uh, in that little clip there, that's hopeful. That's hopeful. And there are countries in the world, I'm sure, where you just wouldn't be able to say something like that yeah, as I mean, openly. I'm going to tell you a very quick story, which is that my best friend growing up in high school, John, he went to Berkeley. He went to college in California. I was in college in New York. He was a dancer. He was like a, a lover of history, wonderful, brilliant guy. And he was walking home one day, like about halfway through Berkeley, he, he was basically moving into professional dance and he was going to drop out of school. He was walking home one day from dance rehearsal and a kid came up to him from Oakland, 15-year-old kid with a gun and said, give me your wallet. And he said, he did kind of what she did. He didn't hug, hug the kid, but he basically was like, just mm. let me mm. be, you know, mm. I, why, why are you pointing a gun in my face? I don't know you. You know, he just literally encountered mm. the person in that way. And I mean, this is very personal. I hope it doesn't make you uncomfortable, but the kid 
shot him. He killed oh, him. He really? killed oh, my friend. No. Yeah. And and yet, you know, all these years yeah. later, I wouldn't have had him handle it yeah. differently. Yeah. Mm. I don't think he did the wrong thing. Mm. That's that's a terrible, terrible story. But it just shows, you know, on on the side of the young kid, you know, what what's going on in his mind? What kind of anger and hate was there that he just prepared to shoot somebody? I mean, this I, this brings up all sorts of other things like <laughs> accessibility to guns and all that, of, which I of think, course. looking, that's the one thing I suppose people in the UK cannot really quite get their heads around. <laughs> yeah, that, you don't that have that problem. Everyone in, in, in America has the right to bear a gun or, or claims the right to bear a gun or 12 guns or six guns or 10 guns or, or 15 guns. And they're proud of having all those guns. It's just something we just don't do. It just doesn't happen in the UK. No, that... I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the cause of all the problems, but just the accessibility, the fact that young boy could have a gun and his anger and his hate could be used just to pull the trigger and kill somebody. I mean, that that's, it's a terrible story. I share it's that, I just share story. that with you because yeah. I, I really deeply share your impulse hmm. to connect with people yeah. rather than to attack. I guess there are moments where you may have no choice but to try yeah. to disarm somebody or whatever, yeah. but. Well, I just don't know what I'd do. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do. You could slap them with a fish. Yeah, yeah. That, that, <laughs> well, that's, that didn't work out very had... well for you the last time. No, you ended no, up in the canal. No, that's canal fine, or... but at least the, uh, the, the fish wasn't deadly. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got time for one more video. Yeah, sure. And then, uh, okay, great. Uh, that was interesting, that one. Made me think, really. Good. <laughs> I, I thought that girl was terrific. So this one is from someone you know quite well. This is your old buddy, John Cleese, and it's We Can't Have Comedy and Be Politically Correct at the Same Time. Okay. <laughs> I'm offended every day. For example, the British newspapers every day offend me with their laziness, their nastiness, and their inaccuracy. But I'm not going to expect someone to stop that happening. I should just simply speak out about it. You know, and sometimes when people are offended, they want somebody to just come in and say, right, stop that to whoever is offending them. And of course, as a former um, chairman of the BBC once said, there are some people one would wish to offend. And I think there's truth in that too. So the idea that you have to be protected from any kind of uncomfortable emotion is one I absolutely do not describe. Uh, subscribed to and a fellow that I helped write to um, books about psychology and psychiatry. He was a renowned psychiatrist in London called Robin Skinner said something very interesting to me. He said, if people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. And when you're around super sensitive people, you cannot relax and be spontaneous because you no idea what's going to upset them next. And that's why I've been warned recently, don't go to most university campuses, because the political correctness has been taken from being a good idea, which is let's not be mean, particularly to people who are not able to look after themselves very well. That's a good idea, to the point where any kind of criticism of any individual or group can be labeled um, cruel. And the whole point about humor, the whole point about comedy, and believe you me, I've thought about this, is that all comedy is critical. Even if you make a very inclusive joke, like um, how do you make God laugh, answer, tell him your plans. Now, that's about the human condition. It's not excluding anyone. It's saying we all have all these plans which probably won't come, and isn't it funny how we still believe they're going to happen? So that's a very inclusive joke. It's still critical. All humor is critical. And if you start saying, oh, we mustn't, we mustn't criticize or offend them, then humor's gone. With humor goes a sense of proportion. And then as far as I'm concerned, you're living in 1984. <laughs> I quite admire John because I admire him very much because he's intellectually very sharp and he thinks things through in a way which I don't. I'm I'm far more sort of um, intuitive and instinctive. Mm. I don't kind of think much about comedy, but I totally agree with him. I think you should be able to laugh at almost anything. Do you agree that all comedy is critical? 
I, d- I don't see it quite as specifically as that. But I think all comedy observes something about human behavior, which is making, it's making a comment right. in some shape or form, right. whatever kind of joke it is. It's looking around you and saying, human behavior, this is what's funny about what's happening there. John's one of the funniest people I know and, and, and the most superb deliverer of comedy lines and all that. What I think is so wonderful about the <laughs> difference between John and me, John is, looks very much like an establishment figure. He looks like, yeah. you know, he the, could head be a of, lord the head of a corporation, a lawyer. He was a sort of a lawyer and all that. And so that is what's so wonderful about John, that he can sort of undercut what appears to be this very serious sort of impressive conservative stance. And that's, that's brilliant. But I, think I think that, that was that, also very useful at that time in British history when you guys were starting to question yeah. a lot of the class distinctions, yeah. right? His having that kind of aristocratic it was, bearing. It was, like. it, it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah. And, and having John play that role completely disarms people who say, oh, these are just a lot of little guys who want to make jokes about us, you know. And there's John. He's one of them sort of thing. <laughs> but, he, but he isn't. He's also very critical and a very funny man. I think that you can get a little bit over serious about it and, and that's why I think sometimes comedy pure silliness things I've done with John like the silly walk sketch or something like that right. so not, that, that's not sort of um, quite what he's talking about there what he's talking about there is that nobody should be prevented because of of some super sensitivity from being the butt of jokes sure and that's that's okay. I think that's fine. I think sometimes jokes can be attacking. They can they can be on the sort of bullying spectrum. Right. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking that, you know, there's all comedy is critical in the sense that it observes specific mm. things and, and makes mm. fun of them. But there is a very subtle, sometimes very subtle distinction, I think, between comedy that is cruel and comedy that is coming from a place of, of delight and joy, you yes. know, with res- respect to what it's making fun of. That, like, making fun of something for all of our sake, you know, mm. because you'd be willing to make fun of the things that are silly about yourself, too, mm. as opposed to a kind of othering and a separation of mm. highlighting your own superiority to mm. somebody else, you know? Yeah. I think I think you've got to be aware of yourself. You've got to be able to undercut yourself as well. You right. Know? If you're saying, well, everybody can be the butt of jokes, you must be able to be the butt of the joke yourself. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I look at John and I think John is seriously serious. He, he's very, very serious about the newspapers in England about the, the what, what they're allowed to get away with. And that's something that all of us uh, who've got a mind in our heads feel. You know, just some, some newspapers are so aggressively right-wing. And yeah, so sure. they, they are bullies themselves. And you need to go after bullies. Yeah. Humour is a very good way of doing it. But you've got to get it right. Just banging on sometimes about your own opposition to something is different from creating humor around it. You know what I mean? Well, because when you bang on about your own opposition to something, people can easily dismiss you uh, from a partisan well, yes. standpoint. Yeah, or just, just say, say, yes, that's your side of the yeah, argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's where comedy is so good, because if you get comedy right, you take people by surprise, you get under their guard, yeah. and they suddenly start laughing, or they get angry one way or the other. But you know, the comedy has, has worked in a way that just direct argument and an antagonistic point of view doesn't work so much. And I, I mean, I think humor was, was one of the first things I sort of remember when I was growing up was that I was able to make people laugh. Mm. And it wasn't really that I was, you know, born to tell jokes or no jokes. Actually, I can never remember jokes. <laughs> it was just because of the way I was, and I was quite a shy child at school, mm. um, I observed a lot. And mm. I sat and I watched and I became fascinated by the way people behaved, the way they moved, the way they talked, especially your teachers, how they scratched their ear or something like that, the way they react to something. My reaction always was to mimic that in order to make people laugh. There was something I felt right. so long as there was sort of laughter there, I was safer. And uh, that's a very good way of avoiding bullying at school is to be able to make people laugh. I've always felt that, always. And I see John talking like that. And and in a sense, I'm a little bit concerned because I think John is, you know, he hasn't made me laugh yet. Uh, Mm. He's made me think. Mm. And that's very, very important. But he hasn't yet made me laugh. And the great moments I remember with John were just when we, we just had a lot to laugh about. 
I mean, I don't want to devalue what he's saying. Of course, of course. I think it's a very good point, but he's, he's making a different point, less about humour than about special groups claiming special rights. It's, it's not really just not to be laughed at, but not to be opposed in any way, you know? People saying, yeah, yeah. Um, we believe this, and we cannot be criticised in any shape or form. That's what John's saying there. That's not good. It's, you know, everybody it's, should be able to be open to criticism. I believe that comedy is a very good way of imposing that criticism without just shouting, um, without getting angry. <laughs> I just sometimes wonder whether, you know, the extent to which this is a straw man, the extent to which this is really a problem, you know, like, are there indeed armies of like hypersensitive progressives running around demanding cocoons of protection? I, I maybe, I mean, you hear about them in the well, newspaper. You, you kind of hear about them. In, in, yeah. <laughs> I think John was talking about universities yeah, and yeah, all yeah, that yeah. and special yeah, sa- you do hear sa- about safety it. areas yeah, and all that sort yeah. of thing. But then... I think that's also dealing, you've got to be very carefully dealing with some people in human, some, some people who are, are less confident, they're less able to, 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 you know, debate as wittily and energetically as John is, and they get, they, they just feel a bit oppressed and go into a shell and have a slightly different reaction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and they're 18 years old, some yeah, of them. And they so. just, oh, you, go, you go through all those, <laughs> yeah, yeah, all those yeah. problems. Yeah. So I think one has to sort of respect people's right to be different. But insisting that being different means that you're beyond criticism of any shape or form, that's ridiculous. But you've got to be a bit careful about bullying people as well. Um, I guess last thing before we wind up, if you were to do a Michael Palin impression, what would that entail? Well, that's a jolly good question, Jason. That's a really good question. You know, I think, and I may I say how much I like you, and your shirt is absolutely is one of the best I've oh, seen in a long time. Very much. And it's just, you know, I, I, I'm so just, I'm so happy to be here. And you're doing. You it. know, you ask me these these questions, and you're absolutely on the ball. And I am, I am just so full of joy at being here. And this prevents me from actually saying what I really want to say, which is that I don't want to be here at all. I'd rather be at home. <laughs> <laughs> I've cracked eventually. And on that note, I, I will I will let you go home, Michael. Thank you so much for well, your I've, time today. This was really fun. No, that's great. I really, really enjoyed it. Made uh, me think. And there really is not a word in the English language that can express how much I enjoyed that conversation just now. I that was so much fun. I would also like to thank our special guests, the guys drilling into the fire escape around 45 minutes until the end of the episode. If you have a smartphone or a digital recorder, I would love to hear your thoughts on anything we just talked about or anything else at all, really. Just record a quick voice memo with your comment or question and email it to me at jason at bigthink.com. And I'd love to respond to some of these in upcoming episodes if it's okay with you. I want to hear from you. We'll be back next week with something completely different. And yes, I stole that from Monty Python. Sorry, Michael. See you then.